I don't know what watch night service does for you. And uh, sometimes when I read the words, it's very easy um, every year when we look at the liturgy to just quickly gloss over. And I know for today and for the past few days when I was looking at the responsive readings, I was reading it with my brain. I wasn't really reading it with my heart. There's a huge difference uh, when you read just to understand as opposed to when you read it to your heart. Uh, example, when our readers were going Please forgive us the poverty of our worship. You know, so yeah, you understand what that means. But when you read it to your heart, sometimes I think back at the times throughout this 52 weeks that have gone past, and the times when we had all our special events, and when at times when it seems really hard to find the energy and the strength to worship. And you come before a God who is awesome and who is most worthy of praise, but you're tired. And so the poverty of our worship creeps in. Uh, you know, the worship leader is going there, come on church! <laughs> and everyone's going, like, oh, you go ahead. At times also, I don't know, when you read these texts, are you speaking it to your heart? When we say, forgive us for those times when instead of working for unity, we made it hard for others to live with us because of our lack of forgiveness, inconsiderate judgment and quick criticisms. Uh, many times when you actually pause and let those words sink in and you allow the Holy Spirit to begin to speak to you, you might be surprised to find that there will be instances when the Holy Spirit will remind you one by one by one until you might end up in a very weeping and very sad state recognizing how wretched how terrible you are sometimes. I know that this is the case for myself. When I look at it, I sometimes wonder how do my children and my wife tolerate me? How does the church still cope with me and not kick me out? Uh, because I know who I am. I know what is hidden in my heart and I'm very good at hiding things. But the same applies to all of us. I think when we actually begin to read the words for what they truly are, and then we need to find for ourselves what does it mean to know who we are, what does it mean to find our rest in God, and why are we here for? What was this whole year all about? What am I busy chasing? And these questions apply to us at different times in our life. You might be in college or in university, a very difficult year, couldn't get through your calculus, couldn't get through your geography of your history and say, why, why am I doing this? Is this anything to do with God's will? Or you might be that lonely housewife who is at home, plonking away, cleaning the bathroom, cleaning up everything and wondering why is it that when we tell everybody to clean up after themselves, nobody listens to me? Am I nothing? Am I no one? Am I nobody? We struggle with our sense of identity. Who are we? What are we called to do? And as good as we come to the end of the year, that we begin to remind ourselves, what are we here for? Who are we? And what is God's work for us? 
And that's why we've chosen this passage from Genesis chapter 1, because beginnings are important. Uh, that's when you're told this is what the model is supposed to be. I know when you continue on to Genesis chapter 3, you find the, the failure and the fault in the mechanism. But it's always good to have a view of what the original model was meant to be, and more importantly, what the final model in the form of Jesus Christ looks like so that we know where we are and where we are headed to. I'd like to know what you do on, uh, on moments like this as you come towards the end of the year and what you look back. What do you remember most about the year? Now, again, this is not a mental exercise. This is a heart exercise. Okay? So will you take... 20 seconds or 30 seconds uh, and then tell the person next to you what do you treasure the most this year now if you if you got something you want to tell your significant other your wife your husband your child or something okay then you remember that and then you go back and you tell them if they're not here but if you have someone next to you and you want to tell them what you remember most about this year let me give you one two minutes to do this right now In case some of you are, are still wondering what to do, <laughs> I'm asking you what touched your heart this year. Why did it touch your heart? Why is this memory of what happened important to you? Because it gives you a sense of who you are and your identity, what you value. And maybe for some of us, you might be very numb N-U-M-B, numb, not durian numb. <laughs> numb is in feeling as in, I don't know, really. I don't know what happened. The year went, pew, <laughs> zippity-doo-dah, fast. And I'm so numb and tired that I don't know what to feel. Maybe that's a good thing too, that you realize it and that you take time to find out and rediscover where your heart is. And you say, Oi, what happened to you, heart? You know, why are you not feeling anything? Some of you uh, might be a little bit like my, my dad or my parents or some of my friends. Uh, they look forward to the end of the year to take out the newspaper because the newspapers will tell them the summary of 2019. What happened in 2019? You know, they'll talk about what prices went up, what things went down, uh, what things were good. And we are searching really hard throughout the year to think, what are we really thankful for? Uh, just a short while ago, I was actually looking at something. It was, uh, it was an article by James Gallagher, uh, who writes for BBC Health. It was this article on the 31st of December. You know, I just wrote it a few hours ago. And I like looking at this because uh, BBC Health actually tells you throughout the world what are some of the things that are happening medically. 
And so he wrote this article about how 2019 was a year of tremendous breakthrough, tremendous medical breakthrough. He started with an article about this gentleman uh, whom you see there using this uh, electronic uh, exoskeleton. And what had been done in 2019 was a paralyzed man for two years who had been uh, uh, paralyzed from the spine downwards was now using equipment that was tapped into his brain that could uh, translate all the signals from his brain so that he could actually begin to take certain moves. Amazing, you know, that a person that's crippled now is able to walk with the help of an exoskeleton and uh, get all these signals being transmitted. There was also another discovery about how uh, you could actually use a synthesized voice to speak once you've lost your voice. Again, a connection to the brain. There was also this discovery about how the uh, DNA uh, had been totally mapped out and now DNA was in such a way that you can actually almost uh, cut copy, paste, and repair uh, 8 out of 10 known vulnerabilities uh, in the human DNA sequence. It became, it's become such a point where it's actually doable and they've done clinical trials and it's now a matter of trying to implement it and see what it happens. Now, uh, all these discoveries are happening at the human body uh, cancer research is targeting specific cancer cells and uh, now it's a cocktail of drugs that is specifically for a person. Now I thought this was all amazing and then they said this <laughs> about this pig. Now I like pork and I like pigs but the story about this pig was that this pig had died for four hours and they resurrected the brain. Now, we've always thought that the brain dies uh, if it doesn't have oxygen for more than uh, eight minutes, something like that. But after four hours, they were able to get this pig's brain to continue functioning. And they were replacing the blood with a certain kind of fluid, and this was almost like reading a Frankenstein movie. Change the ble uh, blood, uh, change the chemical composition, all of this, and this one really got me a little bit excited. It's a picture of a brain that's suffering from a form of dementia. And what was discovered that is that they now have a new drug that has been proven to actually slow down or even stop uh, dementia, which for many people in the kind of ministry that we do is tremendous news. It changes the way people are going to deal with all of this. Now, in spite of all of this, when I look at all this news, I realize that although it may improve or it may seem to improve human life, it doesn't deal with the human condition. It doesn't deal with our human nature, the problem of good, evil, violence, hatred, Anger, war, enmity, selfishness, pride, ego, none of that. And so many writers have written, and even in my seminary studies, he had said that technology gives you the impression that progress is being made. But really what technology does 
is speed you along faster to the discovery that technology doesn't solve your human condition, the human problems. In fact, technology accelerates us faster. More people have been killed in the last 50 years than in the whole 2,000 years combined of modern warfare. I say that again. More people have been killed in the last 50 years than has been killed in the last 2,000 years of modern warfare. We have the significant ability to utterly destroy each other. So how then do we go back to finding what is our problem? I'd like to present to you three windows to look at. Three windows. When I was back as a consultant uh, in, in systems, we're doing systems work, and maybe Daniel might understand this quite well. Uh, we always understood systems as being in three states. It has three states. A state of rest, where it's in storage. A state of transition, where it's moving across the network or for some media to another point. Or a state in process, in a memory somewhere, being worked on. We always thought about these things because in all of these situations, information and data and knowledge is in a state of movement. Now, when we apply this to human systems, there is a lot of similarity. You are either in a place of rest at home or in your car, sitting down, moving from one point to another in a state of transition or in a state of process where you are doing something and you're actively working and uh, moving around. The Bible gave us very similar situations. In Genesis, when God says, uh, let us make uh, man in our image, in our image, let us create him. This act of creation creates one who has the image of God, the ability to reflect the very nature of God and therefore gives us an indication of the mystery of our identity, who we are meant to originally be like, to be a reflection of, made in the image of God, our identity. God in that particular situation also gave work to Adam. In, uh, beginning with Adam, he says, okay, here's your job, Adam. I want you to have dominion over the entire world. Now, that word dominion was also tied within this whole idea of stewardship. Okay, proper stewardship over what God has given to us. So again, a purpose statement. You are called to have the identity to reflect the image of God. You are called to have a purpose that is stewardship over all that God has given you. Over all that God has created, He gives you stewardship over it to manage it, to give it a name, to have authority over it. But then at the end of, of the uh, creation episode, we come to the point where God says, on the seventh day, uh, He saw all that He had created and it was very good. And He rested on the seventh day. And our sense of rest is our sense of being with God, our sense of knowing who we are with God and our sense of our purpose with God, for God. So these three conditions, 
I want to present to you to think about as three windows to look at life this year and the year to come. The first one is, are you resting in your identity? Are you resting in who you are really called to be? Now, we read just now certain passages from 1 John, uh, which talk about God is light. In Him, there is no darkness. And likewise, we are called children of light. And so if your identity is as a child of light, but you live in darkness, or you hide away from your light, then you have an identity crisis. You are not rested in that particular position. And so you choose. In my resting in my original state, do I choose to rest in a state of light and goodness? And Jesus likewise says, you know, those who love me obey my commands. Those who abide in me remain with me and do what I do. And so in this resting in our identity, are we aware of what our true identity is and are we reconciled to it? Or do we shy away from it? Now, resting in our identity doesn't mean no effort. Because although God is at rest, He is still sustaining the world. God is still at work in the world, sustaining all the cosmos and all. It's not a case where God is at rest and everything just drops and the world ends and then He restarts the world. No. A state of rest is when things are the way they ought to be according to God's will. Now, unfortunately, that sometimes doesn't mean good for us. Or rather, it doesn't mean that we are in an excellent state. God's will sometimes is that loved ones return back to Him. It's not what we would desire, but that's what God has willed. And so resting in is sometimes being reconciled to what God is doing and accepting it for what it is. Secondly, <clears throat> in the window of being with, are you someone who is nice to be with? Because when you are being and in a state of becoming, you are traveling with people. In particular, we want to be with Christ. And so if our identity is not aligned to what Christ would have us be, you're going to have a lot of discomfort along the journey. But not only you, everyone else in your family. Because if your being with this person is in a state where you are not aligned to what you're calling to be, then you will be uh, a rather nasty character to hang out with. Because you want to have your way. Always your way. And lastly, in terms of working, are you working for God and doing God's will? Or are you working for yourself and doing your only things? I recall in our liturgy there, one of the things it says there, which you said as a congregation, forgive us for when we waste time and when we misuse the gifts you have given us. Forgive us when we have made excuses for the wrong things we have done 
and when, when you have purposefully avoided responsibility. Now, I read that, and I'm automatically going back through my whole database of how much time I've wasted this year. The number of videos that have just cropped up one by one along the timeline that you keep watching, and next thing you know, uh, it's lunchtime. And then you spend a lot of time going to figure out which food panda, <laughs> which grab food am I going to order. It's an utter waste of time. We distract ourselves in order to not deal with the difficult issues that really need to be dealt with. And a lot of it has to do with our own identity, our purpose, and why we always shy away from doing what is right and true. So are we working for God? Or are we expecting God to work for us? Are we intending for this in all our selfish motives? Or is it what we are calling ourselves to do for God? I ask this also from a point of when you work for God, are you working together with your significant other? Because you notice in the passage that we just read, one of the most important passages which is placed right at the beginning. You notice when God does this, uh, when he, he begins in the beginning, there's a lot of very, very, very important uh, concepts and ideas that are placed right at the front. And one of the important concepts is relationship. Husband and wife. Helper and helpmate. And I recall in one of the sermons that we have talked about, uh, there was no helper found for Adam. But that term, helper, is the same term that we use for Jesus Christ, same term that we use for the Holy Spirit, uh, comforter, helper, who will help you to do what you are called to do. And so both you and your helper both have this purpose to work for God. Are you helping each other to discern what is that purpose and how it is called to be? Or is it the case that you do your thing, I do my thing. And when you do something which I don't like, then you will hear very clearly from me that I am not happy. That's when we are uncomfortable to be with. So let me leave you with these things to know, to be, and to start doing. The first one to know, do you know who you are? And are you resting in your identity? Why are you here on this earth in Penang or in whichever company or school for that particular period of time? But more than that, more than that, do you know that you are made in the image of God? That you have the ability to reflect the nature of God? That you are called to be a child of light? That you are called to be like Christ? And that your identity is not on how much value people, you know, how much value you create with others. Or people like me because I got a thousand likes on my page. My videos are so nice. Uh, Instagram pictures, everybody loves it. Uh, your value is not based on your popularity. 
Your value is based on the fact that God created you in His image and then, as a result of your sin, died for you that you might live. And so my value and my worth is not dependent on what others say about me. And believe me, in any position of any significance, people will always want to cut you down. Your children will scold your parents. Your parents will scold their grandparents. The bosses will scold the staff. The staff will scold the bosses. Everybody wants to cut each other down. But your identity is not defined on your popularity. Your identity is defined by the fact that you are made in the image of God and that God himself gave up himself for you. That's how much he loves you. Will you rest in that identity, knowing that you are loved by God, that he loves you, even when the rest of the world doesn't understand you. In terms of being, are you being good company and are you becoming like Christ? In the going and the doing and the rising and the going forth of this whole year, what is your state of being and becoming? I have to have an honest, hard look at myself this year. Am I becoming more like Christ or am I becoming more like a pig? A lazy one. One who wants to conform to the patterns of this world. So I'm taking a hard look at the mirror of Scripture and taking a hard look at what Jesus is like and saying, am I being like and becoming like Him? Am I being good company with Christ and others, encouraging them, building them up? The final one, are you doing what God called you to do? Are you doing what God called you to do? Here's the one thing that has been a, a real comfort to me. The real comfort to me is no matter what I do, God can do it without me. C.S. Lewis had this, you know, it's like, uh, no amount of me telling the sun how bright it is or shining a torchlight is going to outshine the sun. God, in a way, doesn't need me. But what he does say is, come and join me. And so it is an invitation to, by him, the greatest king of kings, to join him in what he is doing. And so I look forward to it as a challenge as well as a joy. You get tired of it, but at least it's something really positive to put into. So are you doing what God has called you to do? It's a good time at the end of the year to say, in this year, what have I been distracted by? Am I been doing what God has called me to do? Or have I been chasing my pet fancy somewhere else? What's really important? It's in a way a reset, a realignment, a renew button, and a resurrection of what is right and good in our lives. I pray, I pray that you will know your identity, that you will be and become like Christ, 
that you will do what God has called you to do, that only you can do. Let us pray.